Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Have Karaman. Karaman is included in Women Painting Women at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. The exhibition features 46 female artists who choose women as subject matter in their works. It was curated by Andrea Carnes and is on view through September 15th. The exhibition catalog was published by Delmonico. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for $39 to $50. And of course, we'll have links on manpodcast.com. Karaman is a Baghdad-born, Los Angeles-based painter whose work explores the non-fixity of diasporic culture. Her work has been featured in solo exhibitions at the Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis, the Jocelyn Museum of Art in Omaha, and the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. On the second segment, Susan Lake joins me to discuss Clifford Still's paintings on the occasion of a major new book examining the materials still used. But first, Hive Karaman, after the break. The Virginia Museum of Contemporary Art presents Maya Lin, A Study of Water, a solo exhibition that brings together a selection of the internationally acclaimed artists' large-scale sculptural interpretations of water. The exhibition features a site-responsive installation using tens of thousands of polished glass marbles that map waterways onto the walls and floor of the gallery. Maya Lin, A Study of Water, is on view only at the Virginia Museum of Contemporary Art in Virginia Beach, April 21st through September 4th. Admission is free. Reserve your tickets now at virginiamocha.org. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition explores the profound impact of the Great Migration on the social and cultural life of the United States from historical and personal perspectives. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition features newly commissioned works by 12 acclaimed Black artists working across a variety of media. Through the artist's distinct and dynamic installations, a movement in every direction reveals a new spectrum of contexts that shaped the Great Migration and explores the ways in which it continues to reverberate today in both intimate and communal experiences. The exhibition is on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Women Painting Women, on view May 15th through September 25th at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Women Painting Women features 46 female artists who choose women as subject matter in their works. This presentation, international in scope, includes evocative portraits that span the late 1960s to the present. All place women, their bodies, gestures, and individuality at the forefront, conceiving new ways to activate and elaborate on the portrayal of women. The artists highlighted in the exhibition use painting and women as subject matter and range from early trailblazers like Alice Neal and Emma Amos to emerging artists such as Jordan Castile and Apollonia Sokol. Women Painting Women at the Modern through September 25th. And we're back. Have Karaman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Your work... Pretty much always, maybe always, always, features women. Generally a kind of recurring avatar that has changed a little bit after the last 14 or 15 years, but not a whole lot. You're mostly painting the same body or body type, the same hair color, the same, pretty close to the same constant face or set of facial features. So who who is this she that you're painting and has she changed in your own mind? Well... She's a representation of someone who has been marginalized. So someone who's lived on the 
periphery of society, right? I see this figure as a, you know, somebody who's been dehumanized, an immigrant, a refugee, you know, a person of color, the wretched, the subaltern, the dispossessed, I can go on and on, right? But the important part for me is to, to give her a voice, right? To have her take center stage, right? I think a lot of people have thought of her as a self-portrait. This is not how I see the figure. In fact, I want to stay away from this kind of individualistic representation. I see, I see them more as a collective. In your mind, is the woman or are the women you painted in, say, 2008 or 2010 the same women you're painting in 2021 and 22? I don't necessarily think so, no. I mean, there's definitely been many transitions in this figure. Like, my, if you look at my earlier work, you might notice that it's quite overtly violent. Later, too, sometimes, just in different ways. It is, yeah. No, definitely in different ways, though. Like, the earlier stuff is, is, is extreme, in my mind, at least. You know, you'd have, like, there's a painting I titled Honor Killings, uh, in which the women are being hung on this large tree by a noose, you know, or you have you know a group of women who are setting themselves on fire, you know, this act of self-emulation. So it's 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 overtly violent, and I think you know I'm talking now around 2006, seven, eight is when I kind of started working on these, and that's when I first came to the United States. It's when. I would sit in my little studio and turn on turn on um, Al Jazeera, the news, and just keep kind of listening to to what's going on, you know, the news and what's going on in Iraq and how like it was at the height of the sectarian violence too. You know, you'd have like a thousand people dying a day, and I just felt this immense guilt in being in this, you know, the country that's currently at war with my own. And there was a lot of angst, no? So the earlier work, I think, was fueled by by that. And then there's been other transitions also. I would say another pivotal one was in 2010, 2011, where I started using these various tools that I had picked up in Italy more as bait into the painting, right? So they became kind of decoys into the work. So it was a kind of a more, I guess, a conceptual shift, if you will. Let me ask you about the women hanging. I'm using that word really carefully in your work. So sometimes they are hanging in the violent sense of the term, Sometimes you reference marionettes either in how the women are positioned or sometimes even at least in the case of one work, Disguised Marionettes, um, which I think is 2009 in the title of the work. Do you think of women hanging or being used as the performative part of marionettes? I'm not saying that well, but I think you know what I mean. As being different, as being similar, as being related, as being unrelated? Different from what? Is, 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 is being a woman on the end of a marionette rope different from a woman that is hanging in, in, in another way? I'm not sure how to answer that because, I, I mean, I work, the way I work is in series, right? So there's a specific 
subject matter that I want to explore in each series of works. They're all somewhat connected, yet also different. So whether they're similar or not, I mean, maybe there's a transition there in between, you know, the various kind of figures throughout the, the trajectory of my work. The hanging is a good question because a lot of my work, a lot of my paintings lack backgrounds. Oh, we're coming to that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There you go. Uh, because it's related, right? I mean, there, there's this sense of their, them floating, right? There's, there's an ambiguity in, in, in where they are in, in the painting. Well, seeing as you mentioned it, <laughs> one of the, the kind of two formal consistencies across your oeuvre that really jump out at me is that your pictures almost always include vast expanses of bare linen or bare panel, of course, depending on what you're painting on, and that that's been pretty constant for, for 14 or 15 years at least. Why is that bareness of material, if you will, or, or what it allows you to do as a painter important and useful to you? Well, I want the figures to be floating, right? I don't want to anchor them in one place. I feel like, you know, they need to be in an unknown space and an unknown time. And maybe this is a product of being, you know, an immigrant and a refugee, right? That you're constantly in between spaces, that you're not sort of anchored in one place. And I, I... Think also of the Maqamat al-Hariri. The Maqamat uh, are a collection of 50 short stories, and they were illustrated by this, this, the Baghdad School of Miniature Painting back in the 12th century. And I'm not sure many people, at least in the West, know about this art form, but it was flourishing at the time. And they're very different from the, the Persian or the Mughal manuscripts, right? They, the focus is laid on the figure, and in fact, on the expression in their faces. And most often, there are no backgrounds whatsoever. And so I feel like, I mean, this was not a conscious choice for me to, to mimic that, but I feel like that's kind of a fun correlation. And it's worked for you enough that, that you've held on to it for 15 years, which is a long time for a painter to hang on to anything. Yes, true. <laughs> I mean, I have included some backgrounds in some of my work in the How Iraqi Are You series, for example, where I literally did take the Maqamat al-Hariri as inspiration and included some sort of architectural backgrounds. Very, very minimal, though. Those are also the, so far as I can recall, the only works of yours to include text, and it's, it's Arabic text. That is correct, And yes. there's still lots of empty linen in those works. Yeah, the text was it was interesting to include. You know, the idea behind that body of work was to going back to the Maqamat al-Hariri. These were so they're short stories that depicted the everyday life of Iraqis in 12th century Baghdad, right? So what I wanted to do is think of that in today's terms. So how would, you know, people within the diaspora, the Iraqi diaspora live their lives? So I wanted to think of that in today's terms. So then what ended up showing on the paintings was these various narratives and aphorisms of, of everyday life in Iraq today. And so I wanted to write those down. And I think in the act of writing, 
there was, you know, it was evident that there was a huge disassociation that I had with my mother tongue. So I was, I did feel like I was actively relearning my language. Most of your paintings are on linen, but you also paint on panel. And, and in the panel works, we quite often see wood grain and, and wood grain isn't part of the composition, but it adds uh, a, a level of pictorial depth or at least suggests one. Is working on bare linen and leaving the linen bare meaningfully different for you for you than working on wood or on panel and leaving it bare? Well, they're technically, you know, they're di- they're different materials. So the the brush stro- strokes are would be different. You know, the the amount of detail I'm able to achieve on panel or wood versus linen is very different. And yes, I do have to also, with wood, negotiate, like you were saying, that, that kind of the wood grain, right, and the, and the depth. I haven't made many works on wood recently. I don't know. I, I, and, and linen also, you know, linen is a, it's a, for me, it's a problematic surface. I mean, it, it originated in Venice, right? Uh, and so it has that kind of Eurocentric feel to it. So what I find interesting, I, I always try to find ways to kind of dismantle that or to kind of recreate it and make my own surface, and which is something that I've played with also recently in this, in this most recent body of work in which I wanted to, I was, I'm really interested in, in microorganisms. I don't know if we should go into that now, <laughs> but it's like an obsession that I have right now. But bacteria and microorganisms... Uh, and germs, right, are are kind of a load, loaded cultural thing. I, I wanted to sort of think about, and these are ubiquitous things that are that everywhere, all around us. So I wanted to kind of think about whether there has been a bacterial interference in the linen that I use. And sure enough, I discovered that there is. You know, the way linen is made is out of the flaxseed. So the flax, you know, the flax seeds are, are planted in the soil and then, you know, they grow to a certain height. The plant is then cut from, from the bottom and then laid on the soil to, for a few weeks. And during that process, which is called retting, this bacteria comes and interjects and comes in between the, the stalk of the plant and separates the fibers from the, the flax plant, right? And then so we end up with these flax fibers that are then spun into thread and then woven into linen. That blew my mind. (laughs) Right? So I'm like, okay, well, let's go back to the beginning then. So I started ordering a lot of uh, flax fibers. And I don't know if you've you've seen these or you've touched the flax fibers, but, but it's sort of similar to hair actually. So what I, I started making my own substrate from these fibers by kind of laying this warp and weft. It's almost sort of like weaving or even paper making. And then you end up with this, you know, deconstructed linen <laughs> that's made, you know, going back to the flax plant. Some Freudian art scholar would probably have a field day with a work like swallowing antibodies. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. You know, kind of going back to the bare linen, one of the other things that I think has been constant in your work throughout is your use of textile patterns and how visually flat they are against the textured surface of the linen. It's just, it's a really, I mean, they're, they're interesting. The textiles you paint are really interesting visually and formally and and, and, and in how they flatten space. But, but they're also really interesting in how their surface plays off of the surrounding linen. And so I wanted to talk about your use of textile patterns a bit. I guess first, why, why, why are textiles important to you and useful to you as a painter? Well, the, the patterns are, um, they're a tessellation of polygons, right? So, and I do feel that they are needed in the work. I think, I think it gives me a sense of order to, to include them. You know, having grown up in a quite chaotic and capricious environment in Baghdad during the war, one, I think, tends to need some sort of structure. And that is one of the reasons why I want to include them. But I also think that they are part of my Arabness, whatever that means, you know. So injecting that in the work brings me closer to that space and it somehow keeps it alive. You know, the patterns, interestingly enough, are one of the last elements I include in the work. And they're the most intuitive. You know, I'm very structured as a painter. I'm I, I never kind of start a painting without knowing exactly what I'm doing. So there's months of research behind, uh, you know, any body of work. And then there are sketches and colors, you know, sketches and schemes. And all of this is kind of predetermined. I mean, there's some room for error, of course. <laughs> and then the pattern is is the last thing that gets put on the painting. And it, it is somewhat, you know, it is intuitive. Is there a pattern book? Are you are you building patterns from drawings you've made? How how and where do they come from? Because like you like you just suggested, they feel overwhelmingly intentional. Yes, I do have a selection of various patterns that I use. It's not as organized as in a book, <laughs> so that's something I'll work on. But I do, yeah, I do have a collection. So quite often, the patterns are the clothing of the women in your pictures, but also sometimes it's just a pattern that overlays the female body, especially more recently. Is there in, in, in your mind a difference in how you use that patterning, whether it is, is textile or, you know, forgive the horrible word, just overlay? You know, it depends what I'm working on. Like, if we are to go back to the antibody series, you know, the touch of otherness, that's what I titled that body of work. The patterns were definitely more integrated into the, both the background and the foreground and the figure. And with that particular body of work, I was really thinking about dismantling borders, and this idea of permeability, both, you know, with our skin and our environment and everything around us. So it felt fitting to use the pattern to, to talk about that. As the years have gone on in your work, I think your use of patterns has expanded from being only what women wear and being separate and distinct to becoming enormously more complicated. So in work such as Procession from 2017, the patterns operate in one way 
And then when we get to a work like Pigeons from 2021, you are comfortable layering like three, four, five, six patterns like right on top of each other in a really visually complicated, flattening, draw the eye to this collision kind of way. How has that happened? Why have you wanted to create more collisions of more patterns as the years have gone on? I mean, maybe it's just that you as a painter, you're having fun building visual complication into the work, but maybe there's also a conceptual route. No, I mean, it's definitely that as well, because I do, you know, I get bored, <laughs> so I get play around a little bit, you know. But it's funny because 2019, I did a residency in Hawaii at the Doris Duke Foundation there, and somebody came up to me. I had a show at the museum. And somebody came up to me and looked at the patterns and said, you know, is this like the uh, like Aladdin's uh, carpet? <laughs> and I was just sort of floored by that comment. But it, it got me, you know, it got me thinking. Right. And so I wanted to kind of mock that. And specifically in the in the works that you mentioned, like pigeons and, and bunnies, and even in some of the most recent work that I actually have in the studio, there they they I wanted to include and like a carpet, right? They they kind of do look like kind of they're draped as carpets, and I did start looking at various patterns, specifically Kurdish patterns in that are used in you know handwoven carpets, and they all have a meaning. So it's sort of like a language, right? Each each polygon, you know each each pattern means something. So I started including those in the most recent work. Do you have painterly or, or artistic rules around how you will use patterns? For example, do you allow yourself to repeat patterns, you know, from a painting in 2017 to a painting in 2013? Yeah, I, I definitely do. There's a lot of repetition. <laughs> I do. And I also, you know, every now and then I, I see a pattern that I'm drawn to and, you know, I, I bring into the roster. So it's more, it's, it's very playful, actually. Playful. I also wanted to talk about the way bodies exist in your work and especially in recent years, how the limbs and bodies of your figures have more often and more often worked in magical and I guess biologically impossible <laughs> ways sometimes as if the figures in your work have become disembodied and reassembled doll-like or mannequin-like figures. Is the root of that within your imagination, within fiction, within art history, within dot, dot, dot? Yes and no. <laughs> you know, I, 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 think, I think about the, the not-quite-human works. This is a body of work where I drew from contortionists in particular, these are, these are also works that very often have complicated patterning within them and, and, and patterning laid on top of other patterning. patterning. They're, they're probably the most complicated paintings you've made yet. You think so? Okay. <laughs> I would think so, yeah. I mean, a, a bunch of yeah. these, I should add, right, are on view right now at the Savannah College of Art and Design Museum. The Tower from 2019 that's on view now at the Modern in Fort Worth is also one of these really complicated, um, really acrobatic make you look very carefully to see if all of the limbs fit. <laughs> right. No, it's works. true. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause I, you know, as a, as a kid in, in Baghdad, I, I went to the music and ballet school. So, you know, we had 
uh, you know, after class, like around 2 p.m., we'd have at least three hours of rigorous training in ballet. And it was no joke, <laughs> you know. And as a result of this, I was able to, and still am, able to dislocate my shoulder and my thigh bone. So, and I remember I used to use this deformity to perform for friends. And I would just be super curious as to, you know, their reactions. And most often it would be, you know, like bewilderment, like, oh my God, how, how did she do that? And then almost always followed with disgust, like, ew, you know, that looks painful, right? And I can't help but think of the experience of a refugee or an immigrant, you know, the other, right? In that, in those terms. And so this is when I started, I actually started thinking about how our bodies can be so malleable. And right prior to that, I had worked on a dance performance with a few CalArts students. And, and that triggered that memory as well. And, you know, this idea of, of bending so extremely, yet not breaking. Right. And it's just for me, it speaks volumes as to the, you know, the experience of a refugee and having to navigate that and survive that. So so there's a lot of contorted bodies. (laughs) And I think, you know, this kind of it becomes a freakish act. Right. And in, in a way, for me, there's a subversion that happens there because this figure becomes a trickster. Which is a very, you know, I don't know if that, I don't know if the trickster myth structure is as extant in Iraqi or Persian or Arabic tradition as it is in the Native American and Western tradition, but it might be. It definitely, it is. I mean, even the maqamat that we spoke about earlier, uh, they're, they're packed with, you know, word acrobatics, actually. And the figure is a trickster figure. He's always kind of trying to trick the people around him. And it's about him getting away with certain things. (laughs) You know, that experience of being emigrant, immigrant in diaspora, refugeehood. There are two paintings you made in 2018, one called The Celebrity and one called The Audience. And they they kind of feel like halves of halves of a whole are are those pictures an example of how you're painting the experience of diaspora and what it and how different it might be at different moments? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that body of work was again triggered by a memory. You know, I was part of the the Kurdish, the mass Kurdish exodus in the 90s. I don't know if you remember this event. So I grew up in Baghdad, right? But in the 90s, uh, during the first Gulf War, uh, we, my family and I fled to the north, to the northern part of Iraq, the Kurdish region. Uh, I'm actually half Kurdish. And to, you know, to take refuge, to get away from the air raids. And at one point, I think early on, in 1992, early on in the year, this was right when the Americans had come in, right, and they were at the cusp of taking over, but they didn't, as you remember, I'm sure. That time, Saddam actually put out a threat to release chemical weapons on the Kurds, so on us. And 
you know, people, I mean, it caused mass panic because at that time, you know, the, in, within the Kurdish memory, you know, back in 1988, Halabcha happened. Halabcha, I'm not sure if you've heard of this event, but this was when, you know, Chemical Ali, you know, Saddam's party essentially gassed like thousands of people, of women and children, you know, died uh, because of this this gas that was rained, you know, on their bodies and sort of completely disintegrated their their bodies. So that fear and you know that the remembrance of that c- caused an incredible panic. So everybody, including myself and my family, you know, we packed our things and we we moved. We fled like fleeing and being on the move was better than staying still and being gassed to death right so yeah so everybody fled to to the borders of uh, to the uh, Iran and Turkey and it, it was it was horrific the distance between where i was and the border of Iran it was about a 40 kilometer distance so it would take you about an hour it took us 12 days, so bumper to bumper, you know, and we never even reached the border. So I'm going off again on a tangent, <laughs> but I wanted to work with this memory in that body of work. And as I was doing the research, I came across this celebrity aid campaign that that somebody in the UK had had put on it was a worldwide thing you know like you have staying mc hammer performing and all to to raise money for the impoverished kurds so you know myself (laughs) and they you know it was it was televised across you know different countries and you have these celebrities performing on the to the backdrop of impoverished you know suffering vulnerable people and that dichotomy, for me to see that, was just so incredibly intense that I needed to work with it. So I collected all the footage from that concert and took stills. And, and that painting, you know, a few paintings were born because of, from that. So the chaos in the audience, and there's a lot of visual seeming movement, with the exception of one figure in the audience. That's one figure nearly at the dead center of the picture who is looking back at us. So that that, that visual chaos and sea of humanity in that painting has a direct point of origin. It sounds like you're suggesting. Yeah, those are that's a that's the, the, those are two like super intense. Yeah, they are. Sorry, I, I, that might be a little much. No, they're, they're two super audience, intense but... pictures. They're also, you know, like that group of work from around 2018 the patterns in the clothing that the women are wearing kind of stack on top of each other from the bottom of the picture to the top. And I can't think of a single reason why that should be your most nobbies, you know, Fouillard, Bernard, Marc Denis recalling work, but it is. (laughs) And I don't know if there's an art historical reason for that I can't think of, but um, in terms of the relation like in a work like bodies number one you know like like the relationship between japanese japanese prints and the way they were used in france in the late 19th century by non-japanese artists there's a visual relationship there that either either you're very aware of or you're not at all aware of probably not in between (laughs) 
Yeah, no, it makes me think of, you know, because I, I spent a lot of time in Italy, and that's actually where this figure was born. Let me, let me set that up for just a second. So you spent four years in Florence, you know, before, before all this, um, before this work, and, and you visited museums and such. And among the practices you took on in those years as a painter was making copies after old masters. Yes, that's correct. I see that time as a very problematic time in a way. You know, I was completely sort of engulfed in this, in this Eurocentric aesthetic. I completely idealized this, you know, white European art history. Like, this is what I wanted to, you know, aspire to, to mimic, right? And I think this is where that figure was born, right? Within the context, you know, of being completely sort of brainwashed, right? I, I was, you know, she was born riddled with coloniality, and as I started painting more and more, I started reading more and more. So, you know, I came across more specifically like Walter Mignolo's work on decoloniality. And I started realizing that I was actually under this spell of coloniality and that the figures were reflecting that. And that's when that shift happened also in my work that we were talking about earlier in 20. 10 slash 11, where I started using, you know, stealing these, these tools from the Renaissance, like the contrapposto or the golden triangle, or even like how Raffaello painted the fingers, you know, I would put these in the work in the, in the, in the effort to somehow, you know, catch the gaze of my audience, right? Because we're so sort of accustomed to to seeing and believing that as beautiful. And, you know, the, the hope then is that once I've caught the gaze, several other layers can get uncovered. You were also borrowing and have also borrowed kind of, I don't know if tropes is right the quite the right word, but, but, you know, like you'll, you'll have a woman holding a mirror and her face reflected in the mirror, which of course Renaissance painting is rich with that, that pops up again and again in the work. Are there painterly moves or compositional moves that you learned in that time that you've mindfully held on to? Yes, absolutely. The, the, the composition, the, the, the way the, the figures were painted. I mean, I, I find them, I find them incredibly beautiful, but I also know that what happened to me during that time and sort of was really all encompassing because it stole anything else, right? It, it robbed me from my own kind of subjectivity, right? Because it it took over. So what I'm trying to do is reverse that, right? Like use it as a weapon, if you will, in the work. One of the, I don't know if the right word is references, but one of the references that pops up in your work a lot is to games, card games, board games, those games where you have like a square of 16, you know, like a 16 square grid, only one of the spots is left empty and you can rearrange the things to form whatever you want. Puzzles, uh, kind of children's games, like where you get to choose the clothes or compose a body from pieces of paper you punch out, 
into doll-like forms of painting from 2016, I think, called Iraqi Kit. So surely you're mindful of all of these references to games in your work. Why games? Because I have to keep it playful somehow. You know, the subject matter is so incredibly pernicious and intense and bringing in games, you know, lightens that. But it also sort of, it also, I, I mean, it lightens it in the sense that it, it, I think, hopefully, it enables the the audience to access it more because of the subject matter is so violent. And a part of me needs that as well. You know, there there's definitely you know a lot of trauma, <laughs> and and a need to repair, and you know, healing and mending is definitely something part of my work and my personal life and. I think keeping it playful then can help. So speaking of those sliding puzzle works, which tend to be or can be quite, quite large, you made one that was 80 inches square, for example, a work called Corporeal Mappings in 2011. I appreciate that the artwork looks like a sliding puzzle and we're meant to read it as a sliding puzzle. Maybe this is a dumb guy question, but can it actually work that way? Yes, that's the idea, is that you can actually maneuver the individual pieces and create your own artwork. Uh, so you, have you had people do that? Uh, yes, we had people do that during the opening. And what do you think of how it worked? I think it works really well. I mean, there were some technical difficulties in achieving that on a large scale. But I like this idea of, you know, of the audience being able to recreate their own scenes. And there's something also about, I mean, there, I, there's something, I think, quite violent in that as well, because you are sort of dissecting these, these body parts and you're, you're sort of, you're implicated, right, as an audience in doing that. And that's exactly what I was going for. You're for, you know, the, the viewer, the active viewer is forcibly moving someone around. The metaphor for diaspora is strong. I think you used the word stage there. And that's something I had in my notes from several years ago, from, from when I first saw your paintings, that it almost always feels like your figures are on a stage. I don't know if that's intentional. Um, I don't know if that's just the way it works because there's so much bare linen and so there's an inevitable... No, it's definitely intentional. This idea of a spectacle is something that I think about all the time. Uh, I think, you know, it goes back to to being so incredibly and feeling so incredibly hyper visible in my flesh, you know, as a brown refugee woman, well, immigrant at this point, yet completely and utterly invisible in my humanity. And, you know, I'm always really kind of aware of this whenever I go back to Sweden. You know, I feel like walking down the street, I'm, I become a spectacle, right? A representation of difference. And my body is fetishized as alluring, as an exotic other to play with or to even conquer. And so, you know, I, I also become dangerous, right? Because I'm Iraqi. <laughs> but... I'm also totally disposable and dispensable. And so playing with that spectacle, that theatricality, is, is uh, definitely something I inject all the time in my work. 
And more intensely, more recently, take 2021's Hell Hula, for example, wherein the body is literally being violated by munitions. Yes. Yes, there's a mortar that is either coming out or entering her vagina as she's lifting her skirt. And there's a text underneath the figure in vernacular Iraqi uh, saying, Halhula, Halhula, Almuhim Dandula. This translates to, you know, Halhula is um, a ululation, like in the Middle East. I'm sure, you know, during weddings and celebrations, you've heard them, you know, utter these ululations. So it translates to ululations, ululations. The most important part is his penis. And I'll be, I'll leave it there. <laughs> I'll leave it there. There's a lot. <laughs> Let's close by my asking about your drawing practice. You brought it up earlier when we were talking about how you plan out how, you know, I think, I think, I think, I don't know if you use the word obsessively, but, but you were getting at how carefully, shall we say, you, you plan out bodies of works and individual paintings. I can't decide as I look at your paintings if they're getting, you know, more controlled or less controlled, but how has your drawing practice changed since, since the 2000 aughts when the work itself, when the paintings were sparer? It's interesting that you mentioned that because I do try to push myself to loosen <laughs> up a little bit. I mean, I'm very aware that my work is, you know, neat and tidy and there's a reason why. Formally, but not in other ways. Right, exactly. Because it, the, the subject, I mean, the the uh, the conceptual framework is it's, it's extremely chaotic and 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 limbs limbs akimbo and six limbed figures and you know I mean I think that there's there there's for me in each work there's always a way to bring in that error let's put it that way right and to you know in parenthesis loosen up whatever that means and I think you know in the most recent works for example. I am working with creating these black entanglements that look like cords or intestines or maybe even their hair or even, you know, neurotransmitters, if you will. That has given me some space to to loosen up, I guess. You know, I find myself knotting the cords and then freeing them and trying to find various connections and that that act is is very rewarding as an artist right like because you're you know you're constantly sort of discovering new things so in the most recent works i think that that's that, that's where you can find that hey karaman thanks so much thank you for having me The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. 
All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. This summer, the Getty Center is celebrating its 25th anniversary. Since the center opened to the public in 1997, the expansive campus has welcomed millions of visitors from around the world who enjoy the stunning architecture designed by Richard Meyer, landscaped gardens and terraces, including the Central Garden, designed by artist Robert Irwin, and world-class paintings, photographs, sculpture, decorative arts, manuscripts, and drawings collections. You're invited to a summer of celebrations, including an outdoor concert series, community festivals, family fun, and a special audio tour highlighting the site's history. Plan your visit, view related events, and book free advanced reservations today at getty.edu. Welcome back. Next up, Susan Lake joins me to discuss Clifford Still, a new book in the Getty Conservation Institute's The Artist's Materials series. Lake co-authored the book with Barbara A. Ramsey. Built from unprecedented access to art in the Clifford Still estate and later in the Clifford Still Museum in Denver, the book offers a detailed account of Still's materials, his working methods, and techniques. There's all kinds of fascinating stuff in it, including a lot of myth-busting. IndieBound and Amazon both offer it for about $40. Susan Lake, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Leaving alone how difficult and fantastically misogynistic a human being Clifford Still was, (laughs) (laughs) what made Clifford Still's work especially appropriate for this kind of in-depth analysis? Well, I'll start off by maybe quoting David Ann Pham, who was a curator for the inaugural show at the Clifford Still Museum in Denver, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But he talked about his works as having an electric shock. The first painting I, time I ever saw a painting by Clifford Still when I was much younger, I just couldn't get over the broad fields of encrusted paint that suggest crags, fissures, and weathered geolog- geographical formations. And he developed this style as early as the 1940s and did for the most part, did not change it throughout his career. We don't see brushwork so much as knife work. He began using the palette knife as early as the 1930s and continued to do so. Paint is scabbed, molten, caked. And these vast expanses, often in muted colors, are frequently punctuated with small meandering colored lines of contrasting brighter color. And these works seem to me to vaguely conjure up images of phenomenal nature natural phenomena, but phenomenal nature is still repeatedly said is not the subject of these abstractions. Rather, they are, in his words, quote, visions of my creative vision, our imagination, my instruments of inner comprehension and artistic exploration. I paint only myself, he remarked, not nature. And according to a student during, and he was a teacher throughout much of his lifetime, he would expand or expound on the centrality of art, arguing that there was a revolution going on in painting and that the making of abstract painting was a secret weapon in the cause, not only of beauty, but of truth as well. He wasn't shy about being a little megalomaniacal. Oh, not shy at all. No, he, <laughs> he considered him first and foremost among his colleagues. And and I guess maybe almost as part of that, it, maybe it shouldn't surprise us that he liked to control every step of the making process right down to the making of uh, many of the paints he used. You note in the book's introduction 
that among the materials that survived the artist's studio and into the present and came to researchers such as y'all were 171 containers of dry pigment. And in the book, y'all note a number of his orders of pigment, um, which, which um, you know, go into the hundreds of pounds per order. And 93 tube colors, 93 commercial tube colors. So that seems like a striking thing to find and have in an artist's studio at the end of his life. Why would all of that material be important to you as y'all worked on, on Still's pictures? I think what we had was an unprecedented, unprecedented access to Still's materials. For example, I also wrote extensively on Willem de Kooning. And really, there was, in the foundation today, there's very little left of his studio contents. Still, by contrast, and I think this is in large part due to his wife, Patricia, who at her heart was an archivist, he kept everything. He kept every invoice. He he never threw away, as far as I can tell, any bottle or drum of pigment. It all went into into um, this archive. In fact, the archives that we had access to included 50,000 separate items. His diaries, his correspondence, as you say, 171 containers of dry pigment, his brushes, his palette knives, and invoices of um, all the orders he'd made. In fact, you referenced one um, order, and this gives you an idea of what what he was ordering. This is a 1962 order from S. Wolfson Sons and uh, found in our, um, the artist's studio. And in that single order, and it's not unique, he ordered a total of 280 pounds of 20 different types of dry colors. And he did this just after he moved to Maryland when he was setting up his studio. The order includes 50 pounds of zinc white, 30 pounds of turkey red, 24 pounds of Lasco 400 standard black. And in reference to the latter, he specifically requested that there be no substitute to Lasco standard, please. So he made his own paints quite often. Before we talk about the impact that had on the work and continues to have on the work, what do we know about how he made his paints? How did he make them? Well, it's interesting that we know almost nothing about from Still himself about his materials, and that's why this repository of his studio is so valuable. I, I began, her Barbara and I, my co-author, began um, this study with a literature search, and there's almost nothing, almost no information on his painting materials. In fact, knowledge of Still's painting materials was essentially only what he allowed us to know, and that wasn't much. The general literature on the artist is made up largely of biographical entries in exhibition catalogs that were either authored by Still and or his wife, Patricia. He also um, had documented interviews with a strictly controlled select number of historians and critics. And these statements, again, provide little information on Still's painting practice and specific choice of materials. Sandra's daughter, in fact, recalls that a few people that were allowed to visit or even enter a studio, and when he talked with them, um, whether it was students or colleagues or uh, fellow art professionals, he spoke of his art as if it was always in the general context of ideas, never with reference to techniques or materials. He was interested in the ideas, not the specifics, not the mechanics of painting. So how did his choice of materials and his decision to make so many of them 
impact how his work has or is surviving? Interestingly, when Still passed away, he made Patricia the executor of his estate. And we know now that that was 95% of the work that he created. Only 150 of the paintings during his lifetime left his studio. So um, when we tallied the objects that were left, that was 3,400 objects, 363 paintings, 2,573 works on paper and three sculptures. How did, how did his choice of materials impact how his work has or is surviving? After Still passed away, as I said, Patricia became executor, and she pretty much closed off that collection. And for the next 25 years, the collection stayed at that res- their residence in Maryland, sealed off, unknown to the art world, and Patricia f- refused any request, request to um, view the works of art, has access to loan or have research done on them, either to the general public or the scholarly community. So, and as to your question, rumors during this period abounded about the condition of the artworks because... Still's practice was, you know, that, that, that many works of art, he couldn't store them all unless he rolled them. So he, once a painting was dried to the touch, he would roll it, and these rolls are pictured in photographs standing on end, and they occupied every space in his Victorian house and in his uh, studio, which was a converted barn. One of the striking parts of the book is where you point out in the beginning of a chapter how many of these spreaders of those rumors had not traveled to Maryland or seen the work. I mean, just a classic example of the art world operating on things other than knowledge. So you, you brought up colors and, and how they've been surviving in Still's work. I want to talk about red, but before we get to red, in general, how are the colors doing? Especially, you know, which I, which I bring up because Still made so many of them himself. First, I'm going to talk about um, Still's pigments. For the most part, I, I think it's important that we recognize that Still was self-taught, largely. He has a master's, uh, and, and an undergraduate degree and a master's, but his, his exposure in the university system of um, University of Washington was largely, seems to have been art historical. And he began painting at uh, 15 but he, uh, in, when he was living in Canada, but he taught himself to paint. So he relied very heavily, according to Patricia, his wife, on the recommendations of Max Derner. And remember, Still was also a teacher, and this uh, book was a, uh, Derner's books were a textbook. Derner was a German artist and a paint chemist. And a 1937 edition of Derner's materials of the artist and his use in painting was found among studio, still studio effects with underlined passages, indicating that this book may have been an especially important resource. So the pigments that still used were largely ones that were recommended by Derner. They're the tried and true pigments of a traditional painting practice that would have been used in the 19th century into the 20th century. And very few of the modern synthetic pigments. These were almost without exception. Zinc white, carbon black, synthetic ultramarine, Prussian brew, he used it briefly, chrome yellow, and especially the natural iron oxides. There are exceptions because 
as I mentioned, as you mentioned, he purchased his pigments in powdered form, but he did not turn to dry pigment supply to artists in specialty art stores. Rather, he most frequently turned to commercial establishments that sold powdered pigments in very large quantities, which, of course, his paintings would have demanded. In all likelihood, cost would have been a factor. Artist quality dry pigments um, sold in quality art stores were, and as a painter I know, still are expensive. And as such, they're sold in small quantities, usually in eight ounce to one pound bags. As I mentioned, some of the pigments, well, maybe I didn't, but found in still studio were 10-gallon metal drums of dry pigments. And very often, they are hand-labeled with the word wolf's. Along with um, the receipt, 1962 receipt that I mentioned, this suggests that this company may have been Still's primary long-term source of dry pigments. There are examples of pigments in Still's paintings that don't necessarily fit into Derner's recommendation, and they are certainly pigments that are not found in artist-grade oil colors. And this, of course... It's hard to prove that a, that a painting was, the paints in a painting are hand ground, but this does supply evidence that Still did make his own paints for the most part. An example, for example, is red lead, which was identified in several paintings. While the use of red lead certainly dates to antiquity throughout the 20th century, it was really very seldom sold as an artist, a good quality artist paint. Rather, it was almost exclusively manufactured as a pigment in industrial anti-corrosion paints because of its tendency to darken over time. Another pigment that seems unlikely to have been used in ready-made artist paint and which was a real discovery on our part was a distinctive granular black that's still used from as early as 1942 and, and continued to use at least until 1974. This granular black turned out to be a very unusual substance as a paint pigment, powdered anthracite coal. This is the pigment for which still requested that there be no substitutes in that 1962 order from Wolfson's that I cited earlier. Although powdered coal is not undocumented and is an artist pigment, still's use of it in the mid-20th century in oil is certainly quite unconventional. One could speculate as to the reasons for this obvious preference for this color, and, and still always said black was his favorite color. It wasn't a paint, a color of doom, but of exaltation. By the way, I got to interrupt for a second. That is the most Clifford Still thing ever. I mean, did he did he find did he find any difference between doom and exaltation? I'll just I'll just leave that there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> probably liked the coal because if those of us that are very familiar with looking at dill, it has a, of course, an incredibly granular texture. And um, many of um, the surfaces of Still's paintings have this visual effect. He might also have liked it because it has a more bluish cast than the other deep black of carbon blacks. And it might have been easier to disperse in oil than a, a lot of the other. I mean, it's amazing when you think about grinding that amount of pigment on a palette. We didn't find any grinding equipment in his studio. I he couldn't believe that produced, when I read it in the book. I know. I know. He produced these things, but probably very likely produced them by hand. It would have been an arduous process. That, you know, that what, what, what you just said about the surface, the surfaces of Still's paintings are really interesting. They are interesting in terms of their texture, in terms of matte or glossiness, 
you know, they're very topographical. And it is amazing to me that the quality of so many of the surfaces survived being rolled in a barn. Unair conditioned. Yeah. I, I mean, yes. Yeah. No, it's extraordinary. Yeah, I think I think it's quite amazing. There, you know, certainly there are issues that are too technical to discuss to discuss in this that have arisen, such as the appearance of, of uh, metal salts, uh, soaps. But you know, these the conservators can deal with. There, they can lead to some flaking, but it's not, and that's not. It's, it's largely used to the use of zinc white and his zinc white pigments. But they're not issues that that cannot be addressed in a standard conservation lab. So let's talk about the reds for a moment. That's one that in my work on still back 10 or 15 years ago, people were already beginning to discuss. And indeed, there are whole pages on stills reds in this book, really fascinating to anybody who loves stills paintings. So let's take, for example, a 1951-52 picture at SF MoMA a picture that's still included, if memory serves, in his gift to the museum. I think one of the paintings at SF MoMA was a sort of purchase-slash-gifty thing, but the rest of them were, were gifts from Still. How has that painting changed? What would it have looked like fresh, as it were? Yeah, this is actually a really interesting topic because when uh, Barbara and I first started going around and looking at Still paintings and went to San Francisco, this was one of the ones we were shown. It's no longer, to my knowledge, on view because it has faded so significantly. And by fading, and it is an all-red painting, and it's huge. By fading, I mean that it hasn't faded to pink or a light red. It's faded to almost a dark, rust-colored red. And it's interesting to compare this work with works also executed in Lithal Red in the Clifford Still Museum collection. And these are vibrant. They haven't, hadn't seen the light of day. They'd lived rolled out of, in the dark. And they are absolutely spectacular, bright, vivid reds. And it is an, a warning to conservators and curators that these works should have limited periods on view. Because like the anthracite coal, still purchased really large quantities of what was called turkey red dry pigment. And it apparently was also one of his other favorite colors. Um, And these pigments, uh, the the dry pigments, were all indicated by analysis as one of the lithol reds. There's a range of lithol reds. And this was a popular synthetic colorant throughout the 20th century, developed in the early part of that century. They were relatively inexpensive. They were widely used in the United States, not so much in Europe, but in the United States in printing inks, inks, craft products, and industrial paints, but rarely in good quality artist paints. Another abstract expressionist uh, painter known to have used or read extensively but purchased as a house paint was Mark Rothko, most most notably in his Harvard murals. The color in the murals, and there's been a lot of press on this, and the listeners can go online 
um, the color of these murals has altered considerably since their creation in 1962, and clearly due to light-induced fading of the litho-red pigments. Let me jump in really quick. Those Rothko murals were made for the Four Seasons in New York. Um, they were acquired by Harvard a number of years ago, and Harvard did a big exhibition with a fantastic website that I presume is still online. And we'll, we'll, we'll have a link to that. And I'll kind of leave alone the still Rothko history, but let's, let's say it got messy. <laughs> yes, it did. Maybe not as uh, much as Barnett Newman and his, uh, his relationship. That was a whole other, I mean. Uh... Yes, exactly. <laughs> but the, the fugitive nature of where, where the um, commercial paint industry recognized pretty early that Lithol Reds were fugitive. And, and if, it's in a, if it's in a craft product or printing ink and a poster, who cares? But that information didn't get out to painters until later in the century. And, in fact, Derner recommended Lysol Fast Scarlet G as safe to use in oils. And this may have influenced Still's tendency to use this, this color. The Newman story, just so that doesn't hang out there, is that Still was convinced that Newman stole his trademark zips from Still. And it must be said, Still was probably right about that. Newman probably did get that from Still's work. In, in, in another passage in the book, y'all use one of Still's absolute masterpieces, a 1948 picture at the Smithsonian's Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, as a way of revealing how Still, forgive the word, built a canvas. And, 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 and the way you describe how he made that picture really punctures any potential myth of improvisation or, I don't know, Rosenbergian action painting. So what did you learn about how Still made that 1948 picture and kind of and, and what does that reveal about how he composed and constructed canvases? So I, I think this is this is interesting and, and, and when I discuss 1948 pH 15 it, it applies to most of his works because close examination and analysis of this painting reveals that it really was not spontaneous or um, in fact, none of them. Rarely these works are as spontaneous and directly and direct as they appear. The broad gestural effects that are apparent in this work and others is really an illusion of, of immediacy that's not reflected in the technique. The, this painting, in fact, is the result of methodical, deliberate, and considerable forethought. He began many of these works by withdrawing. He would create a Often from a sketch, he would draw on the ma- draw in the major elements, and in fact, not in this work, but in many others, you can see lines around the edges of the major forms, and those lines are usually in graphite, but there are examples also of red wax, red orange wax crayon, charcoal, and sometimes black paint. Another of his favorite techniques, working methods, and that's true with the work in the Hirshhorn Museum, was to initially delineate the major compositional elements of a work with a near monochromatic underpainting. And this is a very traditional technique used by artists as far back as the 16th, 17th century. Once he'd done this underpainting in a monochromatic paint, he would then overpaint this sketch with blocks of color. You know, one of the interesting things about this whole how did he compose and plan out pictures thing is that I had never heard this before, that that you all found in the studio materials or in the estate, I guess both really the same thing, a group of 100 or more 
drawings that Still had apparently made in the early 1940s and that he continued to mine for compositions and forms ever after? Right. Yeah, no, no. He What it was, actually, is he would make small replicas of his own works because they were all... Well, yeah, they were um, the paintings themselves were large and they were they were rolled. So he had what he called his storyboards, and he may not have done these replicas, these small copies of his works. Patricia Still, also an art, well, actually they met when she was one of his art students, and she probably made these copies. And then he would use those images to mine his later images, referring back and forth to them throughout his career. Ah, so am I wrong about those 40s sketches? No, it was, yeah, that was probably the number that there were in total. But he had these on kind of on rolling uh, wall boards that he would move throughout his uh, studio. But I think what's, what's really um, interesting about Still is I, when I first started, had no idea that he produced as many drawings as he did. As I said, over um, 2,500 of them were discovered. And they clearly were a source for the images of some of his larger paintings. And also, apparently, the paintings were a source for some of his drawings. You know, this really runs counter to our conception of abstract expressionism. If you take Rosenberg's uh, 1952 American Action Pigment article to gospel, still took umbrage with Stills, uh, with Rosenberg's description of abstract expressionism and wrote him as such. In fact, Still readily acknowledged that he was not an intuitive painter. And as he explained it, he would begin painting with a preconceived design in mind, but the composition would certainly transform as it was being executed. And I'm quoting it. He said, I envision each painting as a whole but it changes as it evolves and only the final um and sometimes the final result can be a surprise. Yes, yeah, Still's entire career really should serve as a basis for a massive revision of the history of abstract expressionist painting which uh New Yorkers have constructed into a New York project. Still as we've seen through exhibitions and research done by the Still Museum begins painting what we would now call recognizably abstract expressionist works during World War II while in the East Bay and massively expands what he had begun in California when he gets to Richmond, Virginia. If, if we really want to, you know, the, therefore the origins of abstract expressionism might better be understood as shipyards in the East Bay of California and, and what Still was doing when he was teaching at what is now VCU in Richmond, Virginia not some, you know, kind of downtown New York studio. It's just, you know, one of, you know, there are lots of art histories that need to be revised. That's definitely yeah, one of them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, you are you are absolutely correct that in uh, VCU, he began developing what was to become his church style. He did this in absolute isolation. He really, other than a brief introduction or meeting with Rothko in San Francisco, Cisco, he was working on his own, and by that time, he already was developing some of his, um, the elements of his mature style. And then, shortly after he was at VCU, after falling out <laughs> characteristically with the, um, the dean of students, he moved briefly to New York and then met some of the other 
abstract expressionist painter, largely through Rothko's introduction. He uh, met Pollock, Barnett Newman, and Motherwell. He significantly, Rothko introduced him to Peggy Guggenheim, who gave him his first show in 1946. And it was this show that really introduced Still to his um, fellow prescient art, um, abstract expressionist painters. In an introductory brochure to this show, Still wrote an, a small tribute to the, uh, the brochure was for the Autumn Salon Gallery, and he talked about his admiration for Still's work and described his paintings as a profound and moving experience. Years later, Motherwell described the works he saw in this show, and which he said, I'd never heard of Still, and but I, when I saw these works, I now realized that he was the most original of all of us who were that are now associated with early abstract expressionism. And then he says he was a bolt out of the blue. In the estimation of Pollock, years later, he said Still made the rest of us look academic. Yeah, I think I think as somebody who converted to Still late in my art-loving life. I came to find a lot of truth in all that. Um, one, one quick note I want to mention before we wrap up. Um, the 1948 Hirshhorn painting we were talking about earlier is one of either a very small number and perhaps the only still I know that was owned by an artist. It entered the world through the collection of Hassel Smith, who, who taught with still in San Francisco, um, and, and Smith acquired the Hirshhorn 48 painting the year after it was made. Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. Well, it was, I, I think, well, you know, I, I didn't mention that that painting's interesting in that he, he laid in the prelim, pre- preliminary drawing and the underdrawing and then built up the paint of that work by adding huge amounts of calcium carbonate or chalk to that paint to create the texture that it, that it has. I, I think, that, but still did give or sold some of his paintings to fellow artists. And Hassel Smith was one of them. And I think it's interesting that that, you know, James Demetrian, that was acquired under his tenure as director. And he admired Still greatly and, in fact, did one of the few exhibitions of Still's work before the collect before that works before the opening of the Denver Art Museum, and the other one was just a regurgitation, frankly, of of um, works that already were well known. Well, I, let me. I, I should let me. I should point out you could. That's really all that could be done at the time. All of the works were in the estate and 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 were not available for loan. The only exhibitions of still works a curator such as Michael Opping and the Albright Knox could do were exhibitions of what was out there and known. I mean, that was it. Exactly. That is true. On 150 works, that was it. And But what I think separated the Hirshhorn show from, say, the one that you just mentioned, was that Demetrian and Neil Ben Ezra used works that were largely in private collections and so had not been unseen. But um, what I wanted to say about Demetrian is that he very often, he was extraordinary in his acquisitions for the Hirshhorn Museum, and he very often would target paintings that he, down the road, wanted to see acquired in whatever institution he happened to be working in, and that was one of them. Works by Tebow as well. Enormously different from how institutions operate in relation to the market today, and a model that directors and chief curators and acquiring curators should re-examine. Susan Lake, thanks very much. Thank you. This was a pleasure. 
That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.